Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. As always, if you need anything from the podcast or would like to suggest a future guest, please email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. This is another episode of MedTech Money powered by Project MedTech. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. Giovanni's guest today is Michael Moore from Pathware. In this episode, Giovanni and Michael discuss quitting medical school to launch a medical device startup company, raising capital for the first time, East Coast versus Midwest versus West Coast investors, the importance of telling your story as an entrepreneur, lessons learned along the way, and more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Michael Moore. Michael, thank you very much for joining us. This is the MedTech Money podcast series, which is powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And I'm glad to have you on. The reason why we're here today, actually, is you're an entrepreneur that has a story to tell, and I want to get that out there. And the podcast series that we're on right now is basically because I've talked to thousands of MedTech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And and what I've discovered is that there's real no silver bullet or specific formula about how to raise or invest capital in med tech. So my goal with these interviews and discussions is to extract your insights and your anecdotal stories for entrepreneurs, investors, bankers like yourself to help those who can benefit from the information that you have, that you've learned your journey, and hopefully to help out these generations of professionals and entrepreneurs to come. So that's why we're here. And what I imagine those out there listening right now, it's a mixture of experts, novices, people who have been there before, or people who wish they could be there and raise money or be an entrepreneur. And what I wanted to do is extract your stories and your insights and your advice so that we can share with what I imagine is that first time founder or CEO and has no clue what lies ahead of them on that journey of raising capital. And so I thought the best place to start is learning from an experienced professional like yourself, especially you having been a first-time CEO and having done it. So I think this is going to be quite a cool story to extract out. Um, the reason why, why you and I are here, um, specifically to that point, is I want to touch base on what is it like to become a first-time CEO? What is it like to figure out from ground zero how to raise capital? And then also the success that you've had in, in being on that journey and, and how you went about it. So that's why we're here. Um, but before we get into that story and your background, and we'll have you introduce yourself, which you can do it much better than I, in a couple of seconds here, I have a few questions that I wanted to get through first. My first one is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? Or is there anything that I'm missing? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I do view it in that way, but more directly in the sense that it is the the blood it's it's what truly allows you to sustain your company it doesn't actually support your company in any way 
it's more of a way in which you can support the infrastructure that is continually growing, like the blood in your body, as opposed to the, the muscles or the bones itself. So it does allow us to operate. It allows us to be efficient. It allows us to support the infrastructural resources we need to grow as a company and an organization. So yeah, I, I do. But I personally rely more heavily upon the, the team than the money. The money is a, a means to an end at the end of the day. I want to make sure that my team is properly supported in order to grow the business. Well stated. The second one is, and I'm looking forward to getting this story out of you, but being that med tech entrepreneur that you are now, if you knew what you know now at the time when you started this journey and what you've accomplished now, would you do it all again? Is there anything that you'd change? Why or why not? Yeah, I, I asked myself this question a lot, along with my co-founder. We have this conversation over beers every once in a while. <laughs> it, it's very different than what we had set out. Uh, we actually met in undergrad. I remember sitting on his couch talking about a concept of starting a biotech company together. It, it was kind of a, a sparkly idea, rose-colored glasses at the time. Looking back, yes, absolutely. I've been bitten by the bug of entrepreneurship, and there's no going back from that. But I also wish I had been a little bit more realistic with my understanding of this process and kind of the, the trials and tribulations that come along with it. Uh, so in short, yes, I would do it again. Uh, things I would do differently. Uh, frankly, this is my bias in my current moment in time, but uh, I feel like some of the early accelerator programs tend to over-index on customer discovery in some regards. I think customer discovery is really important. Do not get me wrong on that. It's more, there's the famous quote that's misattributed to Henry Ford about like, if you'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. That concept holds true in innovation as well. If you keep going out and asking people what they want, you're going to build widgets that add into their existing infrastructure, but you're not really going to change the way that they do work. And frankly, when you get past the seed stage, when you start going after series A and big capital, they want game-changing type of solutions that are outside the box. And customer discovery doesn't really lend itself towards that type of thinking. So I guess going back to the early days, I wish I had been a little bit bigger with my ambitions uh, and what storytelling I was going after. But also I'm saying that with the bias of fundraising at a series A stage, it, was really helpful at Seed to be really narrowly focused on a very specific indication, but now being able to kind of open that up into a broader implication. But uh, I guess it's a, a longer answer that I think you bargained for. <laughs> no, I, I, I'll, I'll be bold and say out of, out of my responses I received to that specific answer, and I've received some good ones, some sage ones, some very wise and deep ones, but I, I love that response, especially the reference to the Henry Ford <laughs> uh, quote, I, because it, it's true, right? I mean, you don't know what you don't know. And if you only have horses, you want something better. Why not have faster horses? So innovation has to come out from left field sometimes. So I, I do love that. Um, my, my last question, I'm, I'm beta testing this on you. I use this question in real life when I work with my clients, with my network, and, and I've always been fascinated with the meaning behind names. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm I'm beta testing this with you and I'm looking forward to it, but I haven't asked it in my previous podcast. I wish I would, but here we are now. Um, Pathware, without getting into the actual company itself, which mm -hmm. we will uh, very shortly, what does the name Pathware, how did you decide to name your company? Why that name? Yeah, it's been an evolution uh, in the process of founding this company. We actually have gone through three names. 
We started with uh, soft lesion analytics, SLA. Uh, that was back when I was a medical student and I was really fascinated with medical jargon. Uh, nobody understood what lesions were. They just thought it was gross. Uh, so I ended up transitioning away from that. Also, SLA is a legal uh, acronym. And so that led to a lot of confusion as well. Uh, transitioned to MedKairos because I thought everybody liked kind of the, the Greek basis of the name. Nobody knew how to pronounce Kairos. Uh, so that led to a lot of confusion as well. And we ultimately transitioned to Pathware, which I think is the, the most streamlined and simple, which captures the vision of our company. We build software and hardware for pathology. And so combined, that really does just create pathware in the purest sense. Very cool. And just so we know the, the complexities of that, having a name three different times, does that involve three different websites, three different incorporations, all that kind of stuff that you have to change every single time? So we created SLA as an LLC, and then we kind of let that just wither away. And we created MedKairos as a C-Corp. And so I did have to formally change the name from MedKairos to Pathware when we really started building the company out and hiring our first employees. So that was a little bit of a process and filing additional documents in multiple states. It was kind of a headache, but uh, I'm very grateful that we went through that process now. <laughs> and is Pathware here to stay or is there still subject for? No, it's here to stay. I'm not changing that at this point. <laughs> okay, cool. So without further ado, thank you for sharing all that background thus far. Who are you, Michael? Where'd you come from? How'd you get to being CEO and founder of Pathware? And tell us all the guts in between. Yeah. Uh, so my, my life's mission, my life's journey really has been in the pursuit of improving the care in oncology. And that was largely motivated by my, my family's experience back in 2009, where my dad was diagnosed with tonsil cancer. Uh, it was a stage three tonsil cancer. And when they took him to surgery, to finally diagnose it, it was about the size of a golf ball. But that was after about three months of waiting. They did multiple biopsies over this three months, just trying to figure out what this thing was, and they couldn't figure it out. So on the table, he was diagnosed. That's really inefficient, really unsafe, and it weighed heavily on me and my family. And that ultimately led me to say, I want to do something about that. I want to go into medicine. And so I went into college with this fire in my belly to go into healthcare and improve the quality of care provided. Uh, and so I went to the University of Alabama, met my now co-founder. He was a chemical engineer by training. Uh, I was doing biopsych, the, the traditional med student pathway. And we met in a genomics lab together and worked on some tools together. He built the equipment. I ran the studies. So we knew we could work well together, but we kind of went our own separate ways. He went on to an economics graduate program, and I went to uh, Michigan for medical school. And it was at Michigan, I came to appreciate that medicine is much more of an art than a science in a lot of ways. And, and I think from a, a lay person's perspective, you kind of underappreciate that. You think most things are algorithms and if you plug in the right scenario, you'll get the right output. But in a lot of ways, it's very squishy. You have to understand the patient sitting in front of you, what their desires, what their needs are, what their understanding is. And that's really complex. And so it also leads to a lot of subjectivity. And that's where I ultimately realized that there was a lot of inefficiencies and one in particular in uh, how you diagnose. There, there's a lot of bottlenecks that take place because we don't have enough pathologists to go around. There's a lot of subjectivity on how you come to a diagnosis. And so that ultimately motivated me to say, you know what, something needs to be done about this. We haven't done anything to improve the diagnostic process from a logistic standpoint in decades. We just have gotten Quest and LabCorp to be bigger. Uh, that, that's not a viable solution. That's a short-term Band-Aid over a wound. 
And so I left med school back in 2017 to found a path where and called up my, my now co-founder, Jaron, who uh, had just left to the economics graduate program, just start an architecture firm. Uh, so he was kind of, he's a jack of all trades type of personality. <laughs> uh, and I was like, Hey, I know you can build really solid hardware. I know you know how to code. I know you know how to build a team and you can speak this language. I have a problem that needs to be solved. Let's work together and get this thing done. And so we started applying some early stage grants, got off the ground uh, to do customer discovery through the NSF I-Corps program. And that's where we identified our initial problem. And ever since then, we've grown the company now for the past almost five years. Uh, and we have grown to now 12 full-time employees and we're Seattle-based, so uh, moved out of the Midwest. Amazing. Great story. And, and so now that you founded the company, You've mm -hmm. been building the team. You've been starting from this white sheet of paper. You changed the name a few times. How did it get funded? How did you even figure out what funding was? You had left medical school, which I doubt they taught you how to raise capital in medical school. So you had this idea, you had this burning desire that you wanted to do something and change something. You found your co-founder. Mm -hmm. The money had to come from somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so fortunately, I'll... I'll give Jaron some credit there where he had actually applied independently for uh, the NSF I-Corps grant. Uh, he was in uh, a lab at the University of Alabama with a chemical engineering professor. They built this really fancy tool. It was basically a tubing bundle that allowed for stem cell cultures to disaggregate their cells. So when you grow stem cells, they grow in clumps and that's really bad for the overall yield. So you want them to be dispersed so they grow exponentially. And so they were exploring different pharma routes to be able to deploy that technology. And he had called me up and said, hey, can you look into clinical applications? And so that's where I was brought in to be able to just go and talk to physicians and understand what this could be used for. And we got a $50,000 grant to do that. So just go talk to people. Uh, I came to appreciate that uh, if we destroyed a pathologist sample with that tool, they would never talk to us again. And so that was basically dead on arrival. And when we went and talked to GSK, Pfizer, uh, and we we're like, hey, we have this tool that incre increases your cell yields. They were like, we have too many cells to begin with. Nobody's buying them. Why would I want increased cell yield? And so we we're like, this is just mistimed for the market. This is not a viable solution. It's a square peg into a round hole. So we put that away. And after burning through the $50,000, we ultimately just said, what else can we do to get just a little bit of money and start going after the true problem that was communicated to us? Uh, and so we got a grant from... Uh, the Limelson Foundation, uh, through the VentureWell program, was a $25,000 grant for students. Uh, and it was very much just like a, here is how to start up. Here is how to make a team. Here's how to make a C-Corp. What is a C-Corp to begin with? Uh, what is IP? Uh, and all these concepts are so abstract. I, I didn't fully understand them at the time. You can read as many books as you want. But frankly, until you have context, it doesn't really stick. Going back and reading some of those books, I'm like, man, I wish I had actually understood what I was reading at the time. Uh, and so with that $25,000 grant, I was uh, bullish enough to say, you know, I think we can do this. And I ended up leaving med school with $25,000 and going on the fundraising trail. Uh, and that ultimately was just angels uh, knocking on as many doors as physically possible, getting involved in accelerators and local incubator programs and just trying to get introduced to people with money because I didn't have any. Uh, I could max out my credit card, but my limit was like 5,000. Uh, I was a med school dropout. What, who's going to write me a, a loan? Uh, and so I've ultimately lived off of my now wife uh, for a number of months. And uh, fortunately, she was able to pay rent and be able to feed me for a while. And 
Uh, over the course of six months, I built up a network and was able to close a little bit of capital uh, from friends, family. Uh, my entire dad's side of the family are investors independently through an SPV. Uh, so I'm very grateful that I ha had that support network built in. Uh, and we were able to raise about $800,000. Uh, and so that was enough to be able to build a small team. We got into a WeWork and I realized just how expensive that WeWork is now that I've moved out. Uh, and we were able to build our first proof of concept and identify the technology to solve our problems. And with that, then go into more sophisticated angel groups and say, we have a business, not an idea. And so they were then able to invest alongside a health system because our message resonated so strongly with clinicians by working through clinical channels. The Unity Point Health uh, was our lead investor for our seed round. And that's where we are able to raise now $2 million in a seed round to get us off the ground. And so we moved out of the WeWork, built a small team of engineers, built out the technology, and we've gone through a few other closing, closing since then. And we've raised a little south of $7 million total to date. And we're uh, in the process of closing out our Series A to be able to get it through the FDA. So it's been a, an evolutionary process, to say the least. And to clarify that, so you're about to close on your Series A so that means you have closed out and you mentioned an $800,000 seed round? Yeah, so it was a $800,000 safe. Oh, safe. And then $2 million seed preferred. So that converted all the saves. Got and it. then we closed another about $3.6 in convertible notes in between, uh, which helped us not just survive, but thrive during the pandemic. Uh, I'm very, very grateful for the support of the investors that jumped on during that kind of turbulent time. And that got you to the official A, which you're still working on and about to close soon. Yeah, I'm expecting a, a term sheet in the next week. And so we should be moving towards closing here shortly. I'm, I, I'm almost able to take a breath of fresh air. <laughs> so are you going to take a, a holiday or a week off or pop a bottle or something? Or is it like, okay, now that we finally got that blood to throw back into our business, now the times actually start going to work. Yeah, a little bit of both. Uh, we have the dominoes lined up so I can knock them over. But I also have this... Uh, this deadline set for myself, I'm getting married uh, formally because we had to postpone things due to the pandemic on September the 5th. And so I've set that as my deadline of I need to close and get everything lined up so I can go off for a week and just spend time with my wife. <laughs> Congratulations. That's <laughs> awesome, man. Very cool story. Very cool story. So then the three separate parts. So you have your seed round, your bridge round, and now you're, you're straight up A. Obviously, very blessed, like you mentioned, from your father's side on the investors from a personal standpoint. But even in that original A round, or sorry, seed round, did you have to start learning how to network? Was that natural for you? Frankly, no. Uh, I, I don't know if it comes across in this format. I am a pretty strong introvert. Uh, when I go to those networking events in Boston, I'm the person that just like cringes the entire time on the inside because there's a lot of people just pitching at each other and they don't really care what your pitch is. They just want to pitch at you. And so <laughs> I, I don't thrive in those environments personally, but I've kind of forced myself to be an extrovert to be able to network. You have to network. There is no getting away from that. Uh, and going to events like the, uh, oh shoot, conference in January, the- uh, JP Morgan? JP Morgan. Uh, JP Morgan conference, that is critical. You have to go there and shake hands and rub shoulders and see what happens. Uh, but frankly, we got a little lucky uh, with getting Unity Point. Uh, I scour daily uh, all the various news feeds, whether it be LinkedIn, whether it be email listservs, I sign up for everything I can. I spend the first hour of my day just triaging my email because I just get bombarded with all this information. 
And I try and find new funds that are starting up, new funds that we align with and add them to this funnel. And I, I built my own CRM in a platform called Notion. And so I manage all of this daily. And I found Unity Point had just started a fund and it was investing off the balance sheet. Uh, so it was kind of a unique structure and they were really clinically focused. Uh, and so I reached out to them and said, hey, congratulations on your uh, new fund closing. We'd love to talk to you. And I didn't get a response. Uh, not for about a month and a half. I, I emailed them, I think, three times over that period, zero responses. And then finally, uh, an individual named Austin reached out to me. He's like, I am so sorry. Things have been chaotic. We just closed. I'd love to talk to you. Your product seems really interesting. And from there, uh, the rest is history. We were able to fly out, meet with them, shake some hands, meet their pathologists. They were really enthusiastic about what we were building and how it could really improve their quality of care. And uh, so having them as an advocate and a champion really helped. By the way, if, if you're referring to Austin Duke, I have to give him a shout out because Austin is the one that actually introduced you and I. So Austin Duke from Unity, thank yes. you very much. Thank yes. you for putting us together. Absolutely. Um, so now that we know that the networking aspect, you had to learn that, right? So that was, I'm assuming you had to do that even for your seed round of going out and finding angels, et cetera. So how did you even... Once you got past the, the familial connections that were able to give you some initial lifeblood, um, how did you go about that with the rest of it then? I mean, did you just put lists together and did you just start knocking on doors and just expecting a bunch of no's and calibrating after that? Or how did that really work in your head? Yeah, it, fortunately, Michigan has a, a, so where I started was Ann Arbor, Michigan, and they have a, a decent entrepreneurial scene in the life science space that I was able to tap into. There's a lot of network resources established all over the country at this point, these, these startup hubs that will help you get plugged in and help you tell your story. Uh, far too often, I, I hear entrepreneurs pitch and it's like an hour long pitch. If, you, if it takes you an hour to tell your story, your, your story's too long, you need to trim it down. Uh, and so ultimately I submitted into pitch competitions. I was able to tell my story on a stage, get a little bit of public notice from that, but it was really just applying to a lot of angels all over the country. I mean, I remember pitching at the Boston Harbor Angels in the morning, getting on a flight and flying across the country for a pitch in California that evening, and then getting on a flight the next day and flying to Seattle to pitch that next afternoon. That was my circuit going all over the country. And our seed round, we raised from, uh, I believe it was 12 states so it was a, a lot of paperwork for our legal counsel, and I appreciate them doing all that work. But I flew everywhere because as a young startup entrepreneur, especially in life sciences, that is a very difficult place to be, especially in the, the post-theranos world where people are very cautious, especially in diagnostics specifically, of these, these bright-eyed young founders trying to build a black box that can diagnose things. That is a, a scary, scary concept for a lot of early-stage investors. Seed like the angels, VCs are a little bit more tolerant to that type of persona. Uh, but it also gave me, I'm, I'm kind of going on a tangent here briefly, but it gave me an appreciation of the differences in storytelling and risk tolerance between the various geographic locations. The Midwest is very risk averse. Uh, they want you to say, I'm going to raise very little capital. I'm going to get to cash flow positive and exit this thing as quickly as possible. That's how they make their money. If you're going to the East Coast or the West Coast, they're much more, tell me the big picture. How am I going to make this into a unicorn? How are you going to 100x my investment? I don't care if it takes me seven years to get that money back. I want 100x. 
And so it's a very different story that you have to tell us. So you pretty much have to have two different pitch decks, if not three different pitch decks to be able to tell that story of, okay, narrowly focused, how are we going to get this on market? But also how are you going to grow that into an Amazon? Uh, you, you start with books, but how do you get to everything? That It's, a, it's kind of a, a unique tailoring of your story that you have to be able to do. I got a few questions that just spurred coming out of that yeah. message that you just shared with me. And I'm not going to forget them either. But the first one, this question, the entrepreneurs or the audience listening, they may benefit. But this question is 100% for me because I've had this asked or I, I've asked myself this question so many times pre-COVID before mm-hmm. when everyone was living on planes. Mm-hmm. When you tell the story like you flew to Boston same day you flew to San Francisco, next morning you flew to Seattle and you're raising seed rounds of funding, right? Less than a million, maybe a little over a million, whatever it may be. I mean, those are, you and you're in Seattle right now. I'm a little bit North of Miami right now. And I'm sure you and I have had video calls with multiple people that took him all over the country, if not all over the world. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like, and it's not, It'll never replace that human factor of being in person, having coffee or a cocktail or a beer. But I mean, COVID certainly augmented this video situation where it's really almost ingrained in all of us now. We may not like it, especially if they're back to back to back to back, but you don't jump on a video call with any hesitation anymore and see somebody. So my question is, you're raising during this virtual world that we have been living in. You don't have to jump on planes and trains and automobiles, which costs money. Yes, in order to go raise money, which is the purpose, as an entrepreneur, when you're buying flights to go there and buying flights to go there and you're raising, you know, hundreds of thousands or a, let's call it a million, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's not a great deal of money. If it's your personal money, it's a decent amount. But how does that factor in? Like, how do you go out and spend a bunch of money on pitches that may or may not fall on fertile ground and you're still spending money in order to go raise money? It seems counterintuitive. Yeah, and this is the uh, the dark period in which I was maxing out my credit card buying screens for the engineers at the same time. Uh, so that was a, a difficult place to be. Uh, but spending a bunch of money, I wish I had. Uh, frankly, I was flying Spirit, which broke my spirit. Uh, that was, <laughs> <laughs> that was a, not a fun time. Uh, I was taking Peter Pan bus lines all over the East Coast instead of flying, and I was taking Spirit Airlines everywhere I went because I couldn't afford Delta. Uh, so that was not a fun way to travel, but I made it work. Uh, Weirdly enough, the thing I truly miss about the pre-COVID times was when I would get on a flight, nobody could contact me. It was my most productive period because I was completely disconnected from the world and I could focus on my pitch deck or I could focus on my financial model and just really dive into it for six hours undisturbed. And I would get off the flight and be like, man, I just, I knocked out a week's worth of work there. Nowadays, I can't do that. Uh, so I do have increased efficiency in my meeting cadence. I can meet with a bunch of people, but it also has kind of reduced my overall productivity from those events when I was being productive in the air. I think that the challenge with the now virtual meeting structure is VCs can take more meetings. So they do. So they're meeting all day long. I've had multiple meetings where people are just eating during our meeting because they don't have time for lunch and that's fine. But it also means the noise has gotten louder. You are now just another data point in a funnel for them. And so getting your story to bubble up and stick with them at the end of the day out of the 12 other pitches they heard, it's basically you're, you're at a conference daily. 
how are you going to have the VC walk away from your meeting and have them remember you? That, frankly, if I had the answer, I'd have $100 million closed right now. I don't have that answer. I'm trying to figure it out myself, and I think everybody is. But that it's a very strange place to be now in the post-pandemic life. So I hope all those entrepreneurs that are listening right now, watching shows on Netflix or Amazon, Billions This, or all these other sexy shows that talk about being startups and being businesses and making money, um, and actually, there's a show, Startup, it's actually called Startup on Netflix, it takes place in Miami. If you ever do get a chance to watch it, I, I recommend it, it actually is good. But either way, it proves the same point. Startups or being a founder or being a CEO, it sounds super sexy, but mm-hmm. by no stretch of the imagination is it easy. It's it's life fragmenting. It breaks your bank. It breaks your back. It sometimes can break a lot of other personal things in life that you don't want to be broken all for the good of your, your dream. But um, thank you for sharing that story of how that worked. Cause I never really understood that. It, it seemed so counterintuitive. You got to spend money to go raise money. And I know the, the old adage of you got to spend money to make money, but for startups, it seems strange, but um, going back to the coastal thing, I've touched on a few of these points with some of my other conversations and it was news to me because I've heard it mysteriously say some angels will invest in safes. Others will invest in notes and the ones who invest in notes likely won't invest in safes and vice versa. And then it finally was highlighted to me that someone said that there's almost like a cultural nuance to it where a lot of the angel groups will invest in notes that happen to take place on the the East coast or the Midwest. And a lot of the safes are, tucked away on the West coast. Mm-hmm. Do you find that to be similar? I, I think in the past, yes. I think that the safes have now spread pretty far and wide. So people at least know it. I think it, it's more people are afraid to invest in vehicles that they don't understand, which is fair that you shouldn't invest in uh, industries you don't understand. You shouldn't invest in financial vehicles that you don't understand. Uh, but safes now, I think people understand it's a little bit simpler. Uh, and so they're willing to stomach that. It does somewhat cap the the massive opportunity of a convertible note, but really that if the startup is successful and you're investing in a safe pre-seed, you're going to make your money. Uh, the, the difference between a convertible note and a safe is lar- largely negligible in the grand scheme of things. So I think most uh, Midwestern investors, at least I can speak for, uh, they've started to acknowledge that and they're starting to adopt it more frequently or at least be receptive to the conversation. Um, but, uh, frankly, I didn't have that much of a difficult time convincing Midwestern investors of safes. It was more of an education thing. And if you, it's similar to educating them on your company. If you're going to go off on a tangent and try and explain the nuance of the technology, nobody's going to listen. You just have to kind of dumb it down a little bit because it's people's first time experiencing it. As an entrepreneur, if it, if it's your way, right. And if you could always get your way, what's an easier financial vehicle to sell your equity in your organization? Is it a safe or is it a convertible note? Like what's more entrepreneur friendly? Uh, So the safe is more entrepreneurial friendly, uh, but only marginally. I mean, frankly, they're almost the same. The cost to do it from a legal standpoint is almost the same. Uh, It's really not that substantially different in my mind. Uh, the, The difference is safes give you a little bit more flexibility in regards to like maturity or interest compared to a note, which is formalized debt. Uh, so there, there's a difference there. And especially in the, the conversation with investors and how you're positioning them as partners in the early days, as opposed to debt holders, 
I think is advantageous. Debt can misalign incentives between the company and the investor. But again, frankly, if your company is successful, if you're able to continue going up into the right with your valuation, everybody's happy. It's when it goes down, that's where things get sticky. And I think that the safe is a little bit more protective of the startup in that regard. And I have a new topic I want to move to, but one micro question before we get there. You, you went back to this Midwest being conservative and then East and West Coast being more open, big picture. In your experience, it's a generalization for all those out there listening, but if you had to rate them, right? So from conservative to least conservative, is it, and I'll speak for you and correct me, is it Midwest, East Coast, West Coast? Yeah, I'd say that's probably accurate. And I would probably put uh, Southeast almost on par with the Midwest, maybe a little bit less conservative. It might be in between the East Coast uh, because I do view that as its own entity in and of itself. It's, it's starting to become more aggressive in its investment strategies, especially Florida. I've seen a lot out of like the Tampa Bay area and the Atlanta area, um, the research triangle as well. But yeah, I'd say that's probably accurate. I think, especially in biotech, the, this is also just my bias now, my personal experience. Uh, the East Coast, I think, has a legacy type of mentality. They, they, they really like pharma and they understand there's a lot of subject matter experts. So everybody has a very specific thing that they like to focus on. The West Coast tends to be a little bit more fire from the hip. Uh, they'll invest in a broader array of type of technologies. They like uh, software-based things. And so they're a little bit more flexible in what deals they'll do. And that's kind of, I would say, more the difference between the coasts in my mind. Okay. Um, and then moving on, you mentioned even the legal costs, and that is what sparked my question. So legal costs of doing a, a safe versus a note. Um, is it true that a lawyer is an entrepreneur, especially an early stage entrepreneur's best friend during these capital raises? Uh Yes and no. I think that it's often overstated in accelerators like, oh, leverage your lawyer, they'll make intros. They can make intros, but at the end of the day, you're the one selling. They can send an email, uh, but that's the best they can do. Uh, so we've used our IP counsel, we've used our corporate counsel, and I, I've used everybody. I, every advisor I've ever had, I've emailed and been like, do you know anybody that invests in this space? Please make intros and work in those channels. But frankly, their network, their Rolodex is limited just like everybody else's. So you have to go out and into the world and see if those connections can make further connections for you. If you're only going to go out one layer, the, the four degrees of separation of Kevin Bacon, you're, if you only go one layer, you're not going to get very far. You have to keep asking for intros every step of the way. And that's how you expand your network outwards. And, and on the legal side, in addition to that networking capacity that you just said, is it also true that the CEOs job is to be that storyteller, to get the other side of the table, to have those people say, meaning investors, nod their head and say, yes, we're in. But once they say, yes, we're in, and that term sheets start flying around, is that really when the lawyer takes over? And that, because not everyone can be a, a professional negotiator on their first capital raise. Oh yeah. We know exactly what all the terms mean, how to properly negotiate them, what standard industry practice, et cetera. Is that where the lawyer becomes the best friend, meaning they can help you navigate that more legal term documentation side after you've sold the story and the dream to someone to say, okay, that sounds cool. Yeah, uh, I'd say it's accurate. And I, I mean, frankly, I think that a first-time founder, 
should expect to make a mistake. You're going to mess up some language. You're, you're not going to fully understand what indemnification means the first time you go through uh, signing somebody onto your board. You're not going to understand what the various insurances that you need to get to be able to protect your company, but also your board and your key life insurance, what have you. There's so much that you do not understand. And just acknowledging that will help you grow significantly faster than trying to fight against the concept and letting your ego get in the way. And I, I really leaned on my corporate counsel early and often throughout the process. And I still made mistakes, but at least they were CC'd on my emails. So they could quickly respond and be like, actually, I think what Michael meant to say is this. And so it's able to be corrected in real time. Uh, but also I can say in the early days, it cost me money. I remember organizing a pitch of friends and family and there was one individual in the room that was really financially savvy who just really liked to dig into the details. And Frank, I didn't know what I was talking about. I, could, I was able to speak from a clinical perspective. I didn't know how to run a business. I just knew there was a problem that needed to be solved. And I needed capital to hire people to be able to solve it. And he wanted to dive into the business model. He wanted to dive into the very nuanced nature of how cash was going to be managed by our company. And the fact I couldn't answer that lost me that investment. And also lost me two others because they were his friends. And so I was like, okay, I, I'm sorry that I was not honestly mature enough as an entrepreneur to be able to answer your question at this time. I think now if I were to go back and speak with him, I'd be able to answer those questions, but I just needed early stage capital and you're not going to get everybody. Uh, so you kind of need to let it kind of slide off and move on with your life. You can't let, you can't win everybody. You're not going to lose everybody. Uh, so it's just a matter of you win some, you lose some, I guess. Yeah. So then we've talked about your early raise, the differences in angels, the geographies, the tactics with a lawyer. Um, having now come up to the finish line with your Series A, and don't let me forget about Austin Duke. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to circle back to that in a second. But um, what were the major highlights and pieces of knowledge that you learned in the difference of pitching angels versus traditional VCs? What was that difference in raising capital process? Yeah. So I would say raising from angels right now is very akin to the feeling of probably being on Shark Tank. Uh, you go up, it's very performative. You have a set window of time. You have 10 minutes to pitch and you are uninterrupted time. You go up and you tell your story. You have it practice rehearsed. I have all these animations on my slide. It's beautiful. And then I have all these backup slides to answer questions. Going into VCs, they don't want that. They want, tell me what you're doing in 30 seconds or less, and let's have a conversation about it. If you're going to sit here and talk to me for 10 minutes, I'm going to zone out. I'm going to be checking my email on the side. I don't really want to hear a 10-minute spiel about your life work. I'd rather... I understand this space. I live and breathe this space. So I already know the market. You don't have to walk me through that. Let's talk about how yours is different. Let's talk about how we can make it a billion dollar thing together. And if we don't align, I'm going to move on with my day. And you can typically tell almost immediately who has money and who doesn't. There, there's a very di distinct difference in the people that want to kind of just think through things and talk and just keep going on and on and on versus other people that are saying, okay, let's either move on or not. I have a finite amount of time. That's my most valuable resource. Yes or no. Those are VCs. Angels like to dive and see how they can get really involved themselves, which is a good thing and a bad thing. It can be very dangerous if angels want to be too involved. Operators specifically, people that have worked in corporate America for their entire careers that have built up a nest egg that like to throw $15,000, $25,000 checks into companies. 
it's it's helpful in the early days, but it can be somewhat dangerous if you have too many of those people that like to to be hands on because you have employees and you have investors and you as the CEO have to keep them separate. If they're going to intervene with your day to day operations, it can really be distracting. So the major difference there is angels may be looking at multiple companies at once, maybe looking at multiple industries at once, maybe looking at you specifically because it's a passion project and they want to throw some of their high net worth capital towards your way and be proud to say that they're investing or are a part of something like this. But at the end of the day, they're also looking at you as an investment vehicle to possibly uh, diversify their own portfolio. So you're not the only startup that they're looking at, but maybe 10, 15, 20 other companies. Meanwhile, you show up to a VC table. That's their job. That's their industry. That's their profession. They're in, they're out. They know what they're talking about. It's much less gray with angels, like with angels, rather than that near black and white, let's get down to brass tacks and hit it quick. And then if it's necessary, go into further due diligence and close the deal. Yeah. And I, I would say, honestly, raising from angels is more painful than raising from VCs. Uh, <laughs> love to dive deep. I mean, I, so I went through the Kretsu forum. Their diligence is incredibly deep. Uh, I ended up generating a 125 page due diligence document that was circulated with all their investors. That took forever. That was more painful than any VC I went through. When I went to Unity Point with that thing, I was like, please just look at this. It'll answer all your questions. He opened it up and said, I'm not reading all this. Let's just talk. Uh, that's the difference is VCs just want to talk and understand angels want documentation on documentation. It'll go on forever. <laughs> but why do you think that is that? I, I want to dig on that point because once again, I've, I've heard that differentiator and you would think that, I, I mean, is it because they have to have all that paperwork, meaning the angels because they don't know the industry or don't know enough about it. So they need some sort of validation that they can read and touch and hold and pass to their friends. Meanwhile, the VCs have just that, innate ability to say, yes, I understand that because this is what I show up for every day. I think it's more that angel groups are made up of very diverse people mm. and with all different backgrounds and every person has their own individual bias that they like to dive into. And so you might have an IP lawyer in the audience that wants to look specifically at IP and they want 20 pages on IP. You might have somebody that's more of a CPG type of person. They just want to understand how are you going to go to market with this thing? So they're going to dive deep into the marketing and the biz dev side. And to be able to meet the needs of all of these people to their degree is the reason why you need so much documentation across all those sectors. If you're talking to a VC, you're going one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two, maybe a small committee, but they already understand most of what is in that document. You don't have to educate them as much. And so really all you're educating them on is more, why are you different? And how are you going to get this thing to be huge? That's it. It's much simpler in the conversation as opposed to Angels, you're starting from zero. You really have to educate them on what is a pathologist. I've had numerous people ask me, I, I don't actually know what happens to a biopsy. Is, is, what, how do they make a diagnosis? That is starting from square one. <laughs> and, and then is it still possible to get money from someone starting from square one? I mean, at the end of the day, do people who learn about a different industry, a science they've never learned or could understand or comprehend. I mean, are you actually taking someone from zero to a hundred and then have them write you a check? Yeah, I've had to do that. Uh, that was the early days. And it it's honestly a little dangerous. That That's where you classify that as, this is a unfriendly term, but dumb money. It's dangerous money to take on. 
And in the early days as a startup founder, you are dodging bullets left and right. We've gotten lucky in a lot of ways and we've survived some near misses uh, in taking dangerous capital from people that had different intentions. Uh, we were able to refund some investors and get them off our cap table and that really allowed us to survive. Refund, uh, refund investors. Yeah, we had, we had some investors that wanted to make a quick flip of our company and that was not communicated until after capital had been closed. And that was a, a very dangerous place to be. Uh, as a startup, you don't want to be at odds with your investors. And so uh, that was a lesson for me as, as a founder, a first time founder understanding you really need to make sure that everybody's on the same side of the table. Otherwise, don't take their cash. It, you feel desperate. You're not that desperate it'll ruin your life. It'll make it a lot harder and it'll cost you a lot more to take the money than to not. I bring up this topic, good versus bad money. I say it regularly and it's been topics of clubhouse discussions and podcasts and one-on-one -on -one conversations. That good versus bad money is a very important topic, especially early stage, like you mentioned, but even later stages too, because the whole concept of having good investors is they should be bringing more than a check. Yes. Um, and to your point, they could turn into a nightmare if it's bad money. Um, I have to say though, you, you, you take the cake with, I've never heard of someone ever returning money after it was closed out before. That's quite interesting. And also quite respectful as well, because that's, that's bad money. You, you don't want that cap table littered with people who aren't part of the same game. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it was, uh, I think a rare occurrence for our legal counsel as well. So I'm glad that they were again, CC'd on every email to be able to help me navigate that process because I was, that was kind of messy, but at the end of the day, we, we were able to clean it up and now have a, a much cleaner cap table. <laughs> and, and in terms of cap table management, I want to stop there for a couple of minutes. What's because there's strategies involved with that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you go to an angel group and I'm hearing it's more and more rare that they individually form an LLC and, and invest as a one entity on the cap table, which would make your life a lot easier as the entrepreneur. But typically speaking, that doesn't happen because the angel groups then have to manage all that and it's just a headache for them. So then as, a, as an entrepreneur like yourself who closes an angel round, all of a sudden you have, depending on, I mean, five, 10, 15, 100 people on your cap table. How do you properly manage that, especially when it comes to communicating management decisions moving forward? Yeah, uh, so I've, I've done everything under the sun at this point. We've had a ton of individual investors. Our, our I think seed round was 28. Uh, that was made up of individuals. And that was also made up of syndicates, LLCs of angel groups, like what you described. And I've also set up uh, an SPV myself for a later closing to be able to not have uh, just more names added to that list. Uh, frankly, it doesn't add too much of a logistical burden Honestly, it, it adds a little bit when you're trying to close documents or uh, close rounds where you need to have everybody sign. Uh, but I manage everything through Carta. And fortunately, everybody that I work with is fairly responsive. Uh, every once in a while, there's like two or three stragglers that I have to hound to be able to get them to sign documents. It's a little bit of a pain, but it's not insurmountable. Uh, but Carta really helped me kind of just streamline everything. My expectation now I have to do a little bit of cleanup. In post-Series A life, my, one of my first tasks is going to be going back and trying to consolidate some investors. Some are in an LLC, some aren't, and being able to get them all kind of under one umbrella so that it's a little bit cleaner and easier to manage moving forward is going to be something I have to do. This is a lesson I'm actively learning as a founder of this company. Uh, in the future, I'd much prefer to have all investors under individual LLCs. Um, 
that's just not always possible. When I, the Kretu form, their, their policy at the time was to not be involved. They were strictly a, a vessel that allowed you to be introduced to investors and each investor invested independently. I think they're changing that policy now, uh, but that, that was a problem. That's why I ended up bloating my cap table immediately upon launch. That was not a good play and it's a little bit messy, but sometimes you just got to survive. Yeah. So going back to Austin, um, Austin Duke. So Unity Point, that's a hospital system, right? So explain this to those listening. We have the venture arm of Medtronic is a corporate investment division, right? We have Vinsana, mm -hmm. which is a traditional private venture capital firm. We have Life Science Angels, which is that typical angel group that's out in the Bay Area, right? And I'm just giving some mm -hmm. examples here. When you have a hospital system, they also have venture arms. And how does that actually work? And what, what can you compare it to? Like, what is it like to raise money from a hospital system? Yeah, it, it really depends on how it's structured on the back end. So it's kind of hard to tell uh, at, from the entrepreneur's perspective when you're approaching a hospital. Uh, some have very mature venture arms, like your Ascensions of the world, who have dedicated personnel and a dedicated fund that they're playing with for the purpose of investing. Uh, that is almost the same as a venture arm or a venture group, a VC, a Ventana. Uh, that's helpful that they have connections to hospitals, but it, it's a VC. Uh, Unity Point is unique. And I, I'm seeing a lot of hospital systems starting to adopt this. And I think it's only going to accelerate in the post-pandemic world where they realize that they can invest off the balance sheet and basically double dip. They, they get a benefit uh, on multiple perspectives when they support these early stage med tech companies where they can be able to market it themselves and say, hey, we are innovating. We are driving patient care to be better. And so it's part of their marketing campaign. They also get the returns from whatever investments they're making. They get to de-risk that investment by streamlining it directly into the first account, which is really helpful for an early stage startup. And also, a lot of these health system investors prioritize products that have reimbursement associated with them. So even if the company is not successful, they have a new device that allows them to bill and it'll likely pay off the investment that they made anyway. And so it's really a de-risked investment strategy for these health systems who are investing off their balance sheet. Uh, and so they, specifically for Unity Point, like they have a fund that they've agreed with the hospital. Yeah, I, don't, I don't believe in my understanding that it's set aside in like a individual bank account, but they just have an agreement in place around the actual structure of their investment fund. And they're investing into companies that they have to present to a panel that represents the hospital to say, we want to make this investment and they agree and then they make that investment from the hospital itself. Uh, and there's a number of hospitals that are starting to adopt this. And there's some even hybrid models. One investor that we're talking to right now is Epsilon Health Investors. All their LPs are hospital systems that don't have the infrastructure to build something like a Unity Point, but they want to mobilize their cash into startups like this. And so they are working with them to be essentially a conduit. It's a, it is a VC but it's a VC of health systems. So it's able to streamline adoption into hospitals and de-risk our product as well. So I've personally really prioritized going after hospital systems because they understand the problem more than anybody else. A VC 
when I go and pitch them, the first thing they're going to do is call up their hospital buddies, their, their physicians and say, is this a good idea? If I go to a hospital system, they just go to their physicians. They already have them on staff and on payroll. It, it really helps streamline that process. And when they say, yes, we need this and they're pounding the table, they call me back and say, okay, let's talk. Let's, how can we get this deal to move forward? That really helps me as an entrepreneur. And you know, you've touched a nerve when that type of response takes place. So a couple of things, you mentioned products that have reimbursement. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? If we're talking about early stage companies, they haven't even gone through development, let alone regulatory clearance or approval. Mm-hmm. And then after that comes reimbursement. So what did you mean by that? Yeah. So there's, I guess, two ways in which you could capitalize on reimbursement. There's the first, which I believe is probably the, the most traditional, and this is just my experience again, is that uh, you, there's established reimbursement for a specific uh, protocol, and you can tap into that existing reimbursement. There are a number of consultants that you can work with. Some are sharks, some are helpful. That's up to the entrepreneur to figure out and to be able to understand how this is billed and being able to enable physicians to bill for that procedure more frequently or more efficiently, that allows them to capitalize on increased revenue for the hospital. So that is how we do it. There's an established reimbursement code that's going underutilized at most hospitals. CMS has clearly said that the the product that we're developing is helpful. The only way to do it is manual right now and we're automating it. So we're capitalizing on a manual process. The more extravagant and probably the more lucrative way is through the breakthrough device designation from the FDA in which you would be able to apply And the FDA not only holds your hand through all of the regulatory process and the testing, but they also bring CMS into your meetings. And so you're able to have reimbursement established for your product upon clearance. And that really de-risks your company from an investor perspective. So if you can get breakthrough, that's fantastic. That basically makes you a slam dunk for Series A. But there are other ways outside of breakthrough to be able to get reimbursement. And to be clear, would you consider your platform and product and technology, it's considered a diagnostic, right? So we, at the current positioning, are not a diagnostic. The future expectation is to move into diagnostics. We are more of a, a sample triage. We, we verify if the sample is of quality. So your style of technology and innovation, that sounds like it would fit well into a hospital system, hence the whole hospital system investor style. Um, Not necessarily the next widget, meaning catheter or implant or heart valve, or that might not be the best modality to go or technology rather to go to a hospital setting, really more of your style of technology that's helping out healthcare in a more broader sense. Yeah, I would say health systems really like operational investing. So anything that improves the operational efficiency of their institution, more so than, I guess, a generic device. Okay. Uh, that being said, some hospital systems really like devices like uh, a Cleveland Clinic loves heart-based tools. So that they, if I were a catheter or a heart valve company, I'd go after Cleveland Clinic and see if this is something that they would be interested in. But that's more kind of the flavor that the different health systems will be interested in. So then, like you said, some of these hospital systems who are aggregating together via or should be LPs in some of these other VCs that are utilizing these healthcare systems as LPs, um, do you think that hospital systems as investors is more of the way of the future? Like, are we going to see more and more of that? And is it going to have a bearing, do you think, on or could it already have a bearing on traditional VC? Yes, I do think we're going to see more and more of it. I think that 
traditional VC at this point, again, my bias, is that it's moved upstream. Uh, there was an article, I believe it was PitchBook, that they just sent out a couple of days ago that they were saying, like, we're not in a bubble because you can see all the money has moved to late stage, more established companies. And that that's great. Sure. And you, you can say we're smashing records every year that more and more money is flowing into startup. At this point, the Series A and seed stage companies are not seeing that. You're, you're talking Series B, Series C, Series D companies are getting flooded with these unicorn deals. That's fantastic. Sure. But those are de-risked companies. Now you're throwing money at sales and marketing. Series A is the high risk, high reward. And frankly, the VCs have moved upstream. VCs in and of themselves are startups. They're raising larger and larger rounds, but writing the same number of checks into companies. So they have to write larger checks. That's just the nature of the beast. And I think that these hospital systems fit a very unique niche in that they can write smaller checks have a pretty substantial impact on a startup, but also streamline early adoption, which then de-risks that investment for a series B type of strategy for a VC that needs to write a larger check. So I am very bullish on the concept of hospital VC. Uh, I don't know if it'll be the mainstay for series A, but fortunately we've been able to tap into it at this stage. So I could keep on going. And, and by the way, I'm just going to crush that whole thing. You said that you're introverted. I mean, I'm sure that anyone listening on, you and I have had numerous video calls before, so I could see your, your body language and everything. You have a lot of energy going on. Also, you're incredibly eloquent the way you speak. I'm sure the people who have been listening are in, enjoying this massively. I know I am at least. So you might be the wallflower at a physical event somewhere, but at least for the sake of this, it's been great. I really appreciate it. My last question, um, you have a phenomenal story. I love how you founded the company. I love how you learned everything from ground zero, obviously found a great partner, um, not only professionally, but upcoming in, in your personal life as, as well. So congratulations on the wedding. Um, my final question for you is the story of going to med school and we know why you went there, but leaving med school to then become a business entrepreneur. Is there anything that med school gave you that has really benefited you that you would say, yeah, I didn't finish med school. Really glad I didn't finish med school because look at what I've done as an entrepreneur. Um, but honestly, I wouldn't have this, this, and this mentally, emotionally, spiritually, if it mm -hmm. wasn't for going to med school. Was there anything that med school prepped you for? Yeah, I would say two things particularly. One in that I now understand the jargon. I understand the language. I can talk to a physician on their level uh, for the most part and have a meaningful conversation. That's that's difficult to attain, but it's not impossible. You can read enough medical journals or go into sales and marketing in a med tech company and figure it out. I've met a lot of sales reps that know their stuff. But the bigger thing that it taught me really was more clinical decision-making and how that takes place. How do you go through a differential diagnosis? And how are you taking this mass amount of information and distilling it down into a final action plan? That is a very different way of thinking. It's similar to how engineering, if you go into various specialties of engineering, it's very different mental models that you go through and you have to specifically train to understand how that takes place. And that is what I really, I, I believe I walked away from med school with is that understanding of how a physician thinks. And that way for me, when I see med tech companies pitch, that's my first thought is how is this changing my differential diagnosis? If it's not, it's a meaningless product. You're just adding another data point that I didn't ask for to begin with. 
But if you are meaningfully changing my differential, now this is a meaningful conversation. How is this going to improve my decision-making and my treatment plans? That's a meaningful product. So I, I guess it's given me a little bit of a, a BS radar uh, when it comes to vetting other technologies and other companies as I'm talking to them. Very cool. And I, I said it was last question. Any last final words for the proverbial you before you started Pathware? Um, all those first-time entrepreneurs waiting to become first-time entrepreneurs, everyone in med school who mm -hmm. wants to do what you did, anyone who's in a Boston Scientific or a Johnson & Johnson in big corporate who just wants to jump out and become a startup entrepreneur and knows nothing about raising capital. Is there any like big philosophical things, one, two, or three items that just have clicked with you that if you had to speak to the world of upcoming entrepreneurs, what would you say? Absolutely. Uh, I, I think my story, when it's condensed down into, I left med school and started a company and maxed out my credit cards, it, it feeds into this thesis of, uh, it's almost uh, fetishizing this concept of laying it all on the line. You're, you're adopting maximum risk for maximum returns. That's ridiculous. You should not be doing that. You, every step of a startup is a calculated risk. And you should never have to burn the house down in order to leave it. And so actually, my story is a little bit more tame. I took a leave of absence from med school. I didn't leave. And I extended that leave of absence until the company was fully funded. And then I said, okay, I can pay myself for an extended window of time. Now I'm going to jump in full time and build it. But I should not have had to burn the house in order to leave. And on, on a similar vein, the other main lesson I've taken away is you should never burn bridges. Do not go for retribution. Do not try and smack back because you never know when you need to retreat over that bridge and ask for forgiveness and ask for funding. Uh, so far too often, <laughs> I think people are, are very uh, dismissive and when they get wronged, they try and fight back and say, I'm right, you're wrong you need to be cognizant of your own ego and frankly you're wrong more times than you're right and uh being able to acknowledge that sooner rather than later will save you a lot of heartache and hopefully save your company one day <laughs> i love the humble approach well michael i want to say thank you very much for joining us it's been a pleasure having you on your story is absolutely incredible i wish you and jaren an incredible uh rest of your journey. Close that Series A. Congratulations on your wedding. Continue to grow the organization and crush it. And um, nothing but the best. So thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. This is MedTech Money, demystifying raising capital. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.